Welcome to Skim This. This week, China has been cracking down on historic protests that have swept the country. We're breaking down what's going on abroad and how this could affect the global economy. Later, it's lame duck season on Capitol Hill, but the agenda is actually pretty full. We're skimming Congress's busy holiday season. And finally, the internet's favorite word, you know, gaslighting, is the word of the year, according to Merriam-Webster. But are we really using it right? By making it sort of this internet light word, I think we're missing the emotional abuse that it really represents. Break out your dictionaries, because we're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All eyes have been on China this week. After a series of unprecedented protests swept the country. Across China, citizens and police clashing in the streets. The Chinese authorities have taken tough action to try to suppress the widespread protests. Police even searching phones for images or messaging apps that might connect people to the demonstrations. Over the weekend, people in cities across the country came out to protest against China's COVID-19 lockdowns. And some of the protesters went a step further and started to call not just for freedom from COVID restrictions, but freedom in general. And Chinese officials seem to be listening. According to some reports today, China's top official in charge of the country's COVID response signaled that authorities may start rolling back restrictions. This was a major announcement following the most public outcry the government has faced in decades. And already, several major cities have started to ease up their COVID policies. To learn more about the historic demonstrations, we spoke to an expert on Wednesday. I'm Suleen Wong, correspondent for The Economist and host of an eight-part podcast series on China's leader, Xi Jinping, called The Prince. Suleen, I want to start by just asking you to set the scene for me. What's going on on the ground in China? Last weekend, we saw the most extraordinary protests in China since those pro-democracy protests in 1989 in Tiananmen Square that led to a brutal crackdown. And given the police state that Xi Jinping has constructed, many people thought that it was impossible for protests like that to ever happen again. Now, we didn't see the same scale of the protests over the weekend as in 1989, but what was really extraordinary about the protests over the weekend was that we saw thousands of people gather in multiple cities across the country to protest against China's draconian zero-COVID policies. And some of these protesters started calling for political change. They shouted slogans like, down with the Chinese Communist Party, down with Xi Jinping. And the context is that any kind of protest in China is incredibly dangerous. Because they could go to jail, right? That's right. They could go to jail. They could lose their jobs. Their families could be harassed threatened. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party has a whole toolkit for dealing with protests. They'll often use this strategy of saying that there are hostile foreign forces at play. The CIA is fueling these protests, even if that's rubbish. And there's absolutely no evidence that the CIA or any other foreign force is fueling these protests. And in fact, what's actually happening is that Chinese people are fed up 
after years and years of draconian COVID policies in China. So they're protesting COVID policies, but some people also seem to be protesting the government at large. Is that part of the reason why you think these protests are taking hold? Is that they're about COVID, but they're also about something bigger than COVID? It's really, really hard to know because these protests have been so disparate and so scattered. And I think, you know, there are some people who are protesting against COVID specifically and the way they've been personally impacted in their apartment complexes in their local town or local city. But, you know, no doubt there are others who are protesting against the system, against the government, against the Chinese Communist Party. What was really notable was that at certain protests, for example, in Beijing over the weekend, was that when one or two protesters started calling for democracy, other protesters became very nervous and started singing the Chinese national anthem, which is a common technique you see in protests in China where people are worried of being accused of being, you know, unpatriotic or traitors. And so often you see people waving the Chinese flag or holding photos of Xi Jinping, the leader, or singing the national anthem. So it's a really mixed picture. I've also seen videos of protesters holding up white sheets of paper. What do those symbolize? That's another extraordinary development. And I think actually a recurring theme in Chinese protests and the symbolism of a blank sheet of paper is that there's no freedom of speech in China. And so even when you're protesting, you have to self-censor. There's censorship everywhere. And the government thinks that even a blank piece of paper is subversive and and anti-government. And we saw that kind of protest actually in Hong Kong in 2019 when we saw big pro-democracy protests royal the city. And now we're seeing that spread into the mainland. Are there going to be any repercussions for the Chinese government here? The Chinese Communist Party is incredibly fearful of protests spreading around the country. And, you know, they also have a lot of tools at their disposal. And over the past 10 years, we've seen Xi Jinping build very, very powerful censorship machines, propaganda machines, surveillance machines. And those are all in play right now. And we've seen the government really clamp down over the past few days in response to the protests we saw over the weekend. So police are out in force across multiple cities. Barricades have been erected. People are already being rounded up. Their phones are being searched. If you have signal on your phone or Telegram or Twitter, you can become a suspect or even worse than that. What will be very interesting is what happens this coming weekend, whether or not we'll see more protests. It's really, really hard to predict. There's some context I want to make sure we bring in here, which is China is the largest manufacturer in the world. So what happens to the global economy when there are these kinds of large-scale protests? We're already seeing the global economy incredibly impacted because of what's happening domestically in China. Just a few weeks ago, we saw other extraordinary protests at the world's largest iPhone factory, which is in China. And workers there were protesting over the fact that, you know, they were being forced to sleep in dormitories with people who had tested positive to COVID and that they weren't being paid fairly and given wages that they were were said to be owed. And as a result, 
the American consumer is going to be affected because, you know, if you're in America right now and you want to buy a new iPhone, those protests and China's zero COVID policy mean that China is just not actually going to produce the number of iPhones that, that it was expecting to produce to sell around the world. And my last question for you is actually around some news that just broke before we got on the call Wednesday morning U.S. time, which is that one of the former presidents of China has died. Can you tell us about him and how are you thinking about this notable death coinciding with a lot of these protests? Jiang Zemin, who was China's president for 10 years from 1993, has just passed away. We just got news of that. Now, he is a very symbolic figure in a way because he actually represents the height of an open and free or relatively open and free China. And so young people in China today who yearn for for that kind of time in Chinese history see him as this figure of a more liberal China and, you know, the China that could have been. So there is immense symbolism behind his death and his death obviously comes at an incredibly sensitive moment because of these protests that we're seeing. And so we'll have to watch in the coming days if this death fuels more protests or fuels some kind of other reaction, especially from people who are yearning for a very, very different China from the one we're seeing in 2022. Sulin, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. Between the midterm elections and the start of the next congressional season, the House and the Senate are in a weird limbo state called lame duck session lame duck session lame duck session democrats are scrambling to pass bills in both chambers while they still can before republicans take control of the house in january and we're not just talking about small housekeeping items lawmakers are trying to get some big things done in this short period of time we'll skim what's on the agenda for this lame duck session in 60 seconds The first thing on Democrats' agenda is codifying the right to interracial and same-sex marriage with a piece of legislation called the Respect for Marriage Act. This bill federally protects interracial and same-sex marriages and overturns an act that claims marriage exists only between a man and a woman. This became a Democratic priority after Roe v. Wade was overturned earlier this year because that left other rights on the potential chopping block. And on Tuesday this week, the Senate passed the Respect for Marriage Act with 12 Republican votes. It's now expected to pass in the House and make its way to President Biden's desk before the lame duck session ends. So that's the first thing. The second thing on the agenda is avoiding a rail strike. Quick reminder, rail workers and the unions that represent them have been in tense negotiations with rail companies for months over better working conditions and pay. And because they haven't reached a deal yet, a strike could start as soon as December 9th, which would be bad news for the economy. Cue Congress rushing in to avert a strike and potential economic disaster. On Wednesday, the House voted to block the strike by imposing a contract deal, which would include seven days of paid sick leave for rail workers. And just as we publish this, 
That measure passed in the Senate, which means crisis averted. But rail workers might not be too happy. And that brings us to the third thing on lawmakers' agenda during this lame duck session. Funding the federal government before the mid-December deadline. Otherwise, the government could partially shut down, which hasn't happened since 2018. Right now, Congress is tossing around the idea of either a short-term bill that'll keep the lights on through the end of this year, or a broader bill that'll keep the government funded through 2023. Lawmakers are hoping to pass a bill before that deadline, but experts fear that unless Republicans and Democrats figure out funding for line items like COVID-19 in Ukraine, a shutdown isn't out of the question. So it seems like this lame duck session is turning out to be anything but lame. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. Have you noticed that we're in a little bit of a transportation renaissance? Electric cars are taking the auto industry by storm. Mental health walks are trending. And there was even a pandemic bike shortage. But on the flip side, you may have also noticed that there are more and more headlines popping up about traffic accidents. And you're not the only one seeing them. A lot of people, I think, have this kind of grim assessment that there's a sort of certain amount of death that we just have to accept in order to, you know, have cars driving around on roads. That's Emily Badger, a cities and urban policy writer for The Upshot at The New York Times. This summer, she heard about a Washington, D.C. area mom who was a Foreign Service officer who was hit by a truck and killed while she was on her bike. And it turns out she was the third State Department employee killed while walking or biking near the Capitol this year. And that really made Badger think. These three people dying are basically more Foreign Service officers than have died around the world serving in war zones. I mean, that, that, that's just sort of a breathtaking fact. And I was particularly interested in this question of how we compare to other countries, because that was the sort of added irony of this community, the State Department dealing with this issue. Like, here's this group of people who go around the world, like telling other people, you know, here's the American way to do things. And here's this like terrible glaring example of something that actually many, many other parts of the world do way better than we do. And the data totally bears that out. According to a government estimate, almost 39,000 people died on the roads in 2020. And those numbers are going in the wrong direction because that was a 5% jump from 2019, despite a slump in car travel because of the pandemic. The rise in fatalities has also disproportionately impacted the most vulnerable street users, motorcyclists, pedestrians, and cyclists. And here's the thing. The data here at home contrasts to what we're seeing overseas. During the same time frame, deaths caused by road accidents in the UK dropped 17%. And in France, they dropped 23%. So why are the numbers here in the U.S. so high and climbing? Badger said there are a few surface-level things that people point to, like distracted driving, drunk driving, and seatbelt wearing. But those didn't explain the U.S.-specific pandemic spike in fatalities on the road. Because the other countries that have managed to make their roads safer have alcohol and phones, too. 
Instead, Badger learned that more systemic problems are making our roads unsafe. Things like infrastructure and American car culture. I think there's two big reasons why we are different from other developed countries. The first is the way that we have built communities that are dependent on cars, that we offer very few alternatives to cars for people to get around. We believe roads are for cars and everybody else should get out of the way. So there's this sort of big basket of kind of cultural issues. Then the other explanation, I think, has to do with infrastructure. And these two things are sort of intimately connected to each other. And there's like a feedback loop between, you know, our car-centric culture and the infrastructure that we've built. We've built these incredibly wide, fast highways, and even these wide boulevards there in most American cities that are designed for people to drive 50 miles an hour, even through dense urban environments. The primary question that transportation engineers have been charged with addressing is, how do we move cars quickly? How do we move cars efficiently? The question that they have been responsible for answering is not like, how do we move people safely? We have built this transportation system around the idea of cars traveling as fast as possible and removing impediments to cars traveling fast. So how exactly did we become so dependent on cars? Badger told us one factor is age. A lot of comparably developed countries, like in Europe, these are much older cities that they've built that developed before the advent and the widespread use of the car. And so their roads are narrower. Maybe their roads were originally designed for like horses and buggies and pedestrians and trolleys and things like that. Another difference is that other countries have invested more in alternate transportation methods. A lot of comparable countries have been much more intentional about saying, we want to encourage people to ride bikes, so we're going to build protected bike lanes. We want to make it easy for pedestrians to get around, so we're actually going to have sidewalks. There's an intentionality to prioritizing other modes of transportation in other countries that just really has not existed in the United States for a very long time. But we can't blame it all on the U.S. being a late bloomer. She said Americans also focused way more on keeping drivers safe, while other countries zoomed out to look at how cars pose risks to the world around them. There came a point where other countries started to think about the safety of people outside of vehicles, and that's a shift in thinking that has really never been embraced in the United States. You know, we have historically put a lot of thought into how to make cars safer for the people inside of them, and we have not progressed to saying like, okay, well, what happens when we now take that safe car and we smash it into a pedestrian? Are we building roads that would protect those other people? And to me, I find that a very helpful way to think about the problem of road fatalities. There's one set of problems that involves what happens to people inside of a car when there's a crash. And then there's another set of problems and questions, which is like, what happens when cars crash into people who are not in cars? The U.S. may be behind, but there is a glimmer of hope for building safer roads. On the national level, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that passed earlier this year has allocated money to adapting roads in the U.S. So they function as what transportation experts call complete streets. When we talk about complete streets, that might mean taking a street or an avenue in New York that's like six lanes wide with three lanes of traffic in both directions, taking a couple of those lanes of traffic away from cars 
and putting a protected bike lane in that's not just like protecting cyclists with paint on the road, but actually like putting up some kind of plastic barrier or something that physically separates them. And then there are things that those streets do that make pedestrians more visible to people who are driving, painted crosswalks, raised crosswalks, these kinds of changes. They have this sort of side effect of just causing cars to drive slower, signaling to you like you shouldn't expect to be able to tear through the road here. But change takes time and not everybody's along for the ride. When I'm talking about taking that six lane road and removing some of the lanes for car travel and devoting them to something else like a bike lane or a widened sidewalk, we're talking about reallocating resources away from one group of people, those driving cars, to another group of people. And that idea is very upsetting to people, particularly with local politics. Traffic and commuting and your ability to get around drives people crazy people will be single issue voters on what happens with the one block of roadway in front of my house. Making changes to that one block of roadway is really, really difficult because a lot of people don't want things to change. But Badger said she wants those people to stop and think, what's the trade-off? The alternative is that children walking to school on your street get hit by a car. The alternative is that cyclists who are doing you a favor by taking a car off the road get hit by a car. When people are opposing these kinds of changes which make roads safer, like there are costs to that, there are victims to that. Maybe you don't know those victims, but they exist and they're real. On Monday, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary announced its Word of the Year. And it's one you might have heard in your therapist's office or on TikTok. Gaslighting. Gaslighting at work. Gaslighting in a relationship. You're always gaslighting me. Gaslight. Shut up, it's dumb words. Excuse me? Gaslight is like one of the most overused words ever. It's like the point of annihilation. It's like genuinely all a joke. That's right. The word of the year is gaslighting. When we heard that, we wanted to know, how did a word that was mainly used in mental health settings become one of the top-searched words in 2022? So we called up clinical psychologist Dr. Romani Dervasala to understand what gaslighting is and how our use of it has changed over time. First, we asked Dr. Dervasala to define gaslighting without taking a peek at her dictionary. So gaslighting is a form of emotional manipulation that's characterized by denying a person's reality, experiences, or perceptions, and then going one step further and implying that the person is somehow impaired or somehow not well. The modern definition of gaslighting actually comes from a 1938 play, later turned movie, called Gaslight. <laughs> and you thought I was being cool to you. No, you're not cool. <laughs> Keeping people away from you, making you a prisoner. <laughs> oh, you're the kindest man in the world. <laughs> the story follows a woman who descends into madness after she asks her husband if the gaslights in their home are dimming. 
Gregory, are you trying to tell me I'm insane? And even though they actually are dimming, he tells her they aren't and that she's crazy. What makes you do these crazy, twisted things? Yes, of course, that's it. I am mad. And now, 84 years later, searches for the word gaslighting increased almost 2,000% in 2022 from the previous year. So what's driving people to Google it? My belief in why this is now the word of the year is it's concentric circles. I think this is a societal phenomenon. I think this is happening in schools and educational settings. I think this is happening in families. And I think this is happening in intimate relationships. Women have been more vulnerable to gaslighting because they've traditionally held less societal power. So a person who holds less power in a situation, it's easier to gaslight because of that less perceived power. It's happening in so many spaces of our lives, in the workplace, you name it. And we finally have given name to the phenomenon. But even though more people seem to be talking about gaslighting, Dr. Dravosla says she had mixed feelings when she heard it was named Word of the Year. I thought, oh, the recognition of the phenomenon, great. But it concerned me for this reason that people are now using this as a catch-all word for somebody who disagrees with them or may just merely be telling them a lie. Gaslighting is not just a difference in opinion. Gaslighting is not lying. Usually evidence will bring a liar to even begrudgingly fess up. If you were to bring evidence to a gaslighter, they would use that as a jumping off point to pathologize the other person further. Gaslighting isn't just because somebody's arguing with you. A lack of agreement is also not gaslighting. So I think that the problem is, is that a lot of people are using it to capture these differences in opinions, differences in beliefs. But if there's not that additional process of dismantling the other person, it's really not gaslighting. And the reason people don't always use gaslighting in the right context is because of the internet. Unfortunately, what happens is, and I call this the TikTokification of mental health, but what I'm struck by is how often a 30-second TikTok video, which is really made by somebody who actually might have no training in mental health, can actually get a lot of misinformation out there really fast. By making it sort of this internet light word, like, he went out with his friends tonight, he gaslighted me, well, maybe. But by cheapening the word, I think we're missing the emotional abuse that it really represents. It's devaluing the experience that people who are really surviving in toxic situations are going through. So when somebody's really experiencing gaslighting, people are now gonna be like, oh, come on now, those are just buzzwords, when in fact they're experiencing something very real that's taking a tremendous psychological toll on them. Dr. Durvasala acknowledged that the word is probably still going to be misused. But she told us hopefully all this attention on gaslighting can actually be educational and beneficial for all of us. People who act in coaching capacities, therapists, coaches, physicians, nurses, people who work in HR, managers, anyone who might be helping people navigate through really difficult relational spaces should have a really solid working knowledge of this Because if you look at the original film Gaslight, spoiler alert, the lead character, the woman, the thing that broke the gaslight, if you will, that turned the gaslight off for her, was another person. 
Another person weighing in and saying, I saw that. You're not crazy. You said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? And so if we could be that to each other, that's how we turn gaslights off. Before we go, have you ever been asked a sexist or just plain irrelevant question at work? Well, the two prime ministers of New Zealand and Finland have. This week, PMs Jacinda Ardern and Sanna Marin had a historic diplomatic meeting. But during a press conference, one reporter didn't seem to get the memo. A lot of people will be wondering, are you two meeting just because, you know, you're similar in age and, you know, got a lot of, you know, common stuff there, you know, when you got into politics and stuff, or can Kiwis actually expect to see more deals between our two countries down the line? What's that expression about there's no such thing as a stupid question? My first question is I wonder whether or not anyone ever asked Barack Obama and John Key if they met because they were of similar age. We of course have a higher proportion of men in politics. It's reality because two women meet. It's not simply because of their gender. Yeah, we are meeting because we are prime ministers. (laughs) That's quite the mic drop and the energy we need to head into the weekend. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Sarah Collins. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway. And the Skims head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next week. Until then, check out the Skims' other podcast. It's called 9 to 5-ish, and it's where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. You can find it wherever you're already listening to us.